Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Eli, back with you. Happy New Year. Welcome to the second year of the AAMFT podcast, where we strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. We are committed to diversity within our field of couple and family therapy, systemic thinking, and what a great way to start off the new year with an episode talking about the minority student experience, both um, master's and doctoral. And we have some great guests to do that with today. Leslie Anderson is a licensed marriage and family therapist from the great state of Mississippi and a clinical fellow of AAMFT. She earned her BA in psychology from Tougaloo College in 2009. That's a private historically black college in Jackson, Mississippi. And her MSMFT from the University of Southern Mississippi in 2012. Currently, Leslie is a th- fourth-year Ph.D. student at the University of Georgia studying human development and family science with an emphasis in MFT. She's practicing from a social justice lens in her work. Her long-term goal is return to Mississippi and develop an MFT training program at a historically black college or university in the state. She's committed to seeing the field of MFT flourish as a more diverse, inclusive, and multicultural profession. She's joined by her colleague, She's a Mosin. She's as a mom to two wonderful kids. She has a PhD in family therapy and currently is an adjunct faculty member at Texas Women's University, where diversity is her favorite class to teach. She's an LMFT and an LPC who focuses on serving multicultural families and teenagers. She's currently serving on the South Lake Library Board and is a board member uh, for IQRA. That's an interfaith dialogue organization within the Muslim community. After she's in Leslie, uh, we'll be joined briefly by AMFT's own Jermaine Lowry to talk about the Minority Fellowship Program. We are on the AAMFT podcast. I am pleased to be joined today by Leslie Anderson and Shisa Moshin. And we're going to be talking about the MFT minority experience, all around cultural diversity, both in MFT training programs and how to move the field forward. So, Welcome, ladies. And the first question is always, we get to know a little bit about our guest. What initially interested you in MFT as a profession? So um, thank you uh, for the opportunity to, to share my experience. Um, I think my, my story into how I got interested in, in marriage and family therapy may or may not be a little bit unorthodox. Um, but I always say that I really didn't know what I was getting myself into um, with MFT. My bachelor's is in psychology. And so I knew that I was interested in working with couples in particular. Um, I was really wanting to get involved in like premarital work, um, helping couples to work through issues of infidelity and various other challenges. And so really the language, marriage and family therapy, uh, really drew me into, into the field. But then actually, once I was accepted into my master's program and really gained a, a deeper level of understanding about systems theory and, and what that really means, it opened my eyes up to, to a whole new world. And so I came in with a very you know, particular focus but since that time, it's it's grown quite a bit. But yeah, it was that initial interest in wanting to, to do couples work for the most part. And right now you're a doctoral student at um, 
uh, COAMP, the accredited program uh, at UGA, University of Georgia, correct? Correct. I am um, in my third year in the program. Outstanding. And and she's, uh, uh, you have just completed your doctoral degree. Tell us uh, about your journey. How did you uh, get into MFT? All right. So it was interesting and I'm very grateful that I landed in this space. Uh, I actually made a career transition. So I was a human resources professional and initially destined um, toward industrial organizational psychology. And what led me to be very interested in MFP was looking for a practitioner to help Uh, myself and people in my community um, when they were struggling in different stages in their life and finding lack of practitioners that would be representative of that population. And it was very interesting to me as I experienced family therapy um, on the receiving side of it to see that there was an opportunity for understanding different minority populations. At least that was limited to my experience. The other thing that had always interested me was the kind of work I did in human resources. I used to get a lot of um, snide remarks, I will call them, (laughs) and sometimes great feedback saying, you know, you want to make sure you manage your boundary because you're not a therapist. And it used to intrigue me and I was like, what the heck do they do? And, um, and as I learned more and uh, I got more exposed to the field, I kind of fell in love with it and I knew that that was my calling. That's great. You know, when we, we think of our field, um, when you take a, a course, a lot of listeners of our podcast will be young professionals, either therapists or training or preclinical fellows. And our field has come a long way as far as diversity and cultural competency, but some of our classic models, uh, when we think of early family therapists as very patriarchal, uh, not diverse. Um, uh, what is has been your experience as far as a minority voice, cultural um, diversity within the field of, of MFT? And, and was it like you thought, or once you entered into it, was it different than you expected it to be? Yeah, I would say that uh, a lot of my early clinical work, because I I got my master's in 2012, so I took about four years off between my master's and PhD. And during that time, I worked primarily in in communities doing school-based therapy, um, doing in-home therapy, primarily with black families um, below the the, um, federal uh, poverty line. And so, there were a number of different like stressors and, and factors at play with these families. And there were a number of times where I felt really frustrated um, in trying to use some of the systemic models that I had been trained to use with these families and just felt like I was running into, into barriers because there were larger systems at play um, that were impacting these families. And so that really encouraged me to be more uh, reflexive in my own clinical practice and sort of engage in this process of self-interrogation, so to speak, about the models um, that I was trying to use and really figuring out ways to adapt the models and really apply a critical lens to my work in order to best meet the needs of the families that I was working with. Yeah, I like that. I often say um, our clients have enough issues. They should not have to accommodate to us as the therapist our way of working. We should be able to flexibly accommodate to them, uh, including their their cultural background and their communities and the context of, of which they live. So you found that out very early in your training. Same questions. Eli, for me, um, I started noticing Uh, the positivity of the efforts that are being made to increase awareness for minority experiences and for training. So that has been very heartening to see the emphasis, to see the growth in research and publication and to see the 
the growing effort in an intentionality uh, in attempting to groom as well as nurture uh, minority professionals in this field. What I also noticed that I didn't realize was that we still have such a long way to go and and where we are as I see it is that we're reaching out to either poverty or privilege where people who are struggling and really challenging I guess there's a lot more organization in uh, help and support um, at that level and I see that people who have privilege have a lot more means and resources to get access to um, the, the the service as well as to the profession and, and field and and all the uh, the rich knowledge that it brings I feel that there is a huge opportunity that lies in between the diversity of needs that we have for minorities in between and there's a spectrum of students and professionals and clients that fall in that category and we have a lot of opportunities to learn and grow in that space so that's what I'm noticing we certainly do and hopefully we can talk about this on two levels today so let's start let's talk about from a MFT education perspective as far as your experience in the classroom and MFT training and then the kind of parallel process to therapist working with clients as it comes to uh, issues of diversity and race. So whose responsibility do you think it is to initiate conversations about race and race dynamics within our training programs? Is it the responsibility of the faculty? Is it the students? Is it both? What do you think? I would agree with Shiza. I think we've, as a discipline, we have made strides in, in terms of addressing issues related to race um, and, and multiculturalism, but there there's still, you know, efforts that, that need to be that need to be made. And because of that, I, I do feel like within our training programs, because of the power differential that exists between students or trainees and faculty or or supervisors, that the onus really is um, on that faculty member or that clinical supervisor to initiate those conversations. From my experience, it's typically situations where the tension is felt. Um, it's sort of like, you know, the, the elephant in the room, it's right there. Everybody is aware that there is a conversation or there is dialogue that needs to be had, but there's still some reluctance to, to really go there and address some of these things in a, in a very direct way. Um, and so again, I think just because students are in like that, that one down position, uh, and there may be times where the student, you know, feels particularly compelled to address something. But in my own personal opinion, I, I do think their responsibility still lies with, with the supervisor or the faculty person. So for you, the faculty member, the supervisor has to acknowledge it and normalize it, much like a therapist would normalize for a client in order to begin the dialogue. What do you think, Shiza? I would concur with Leslie to a large degree. I'm remembering the quote uh, of our panel discussion that uh, Leslie uh, had put on our slide, and Leslie uh, helped me out here, where there's something about, uh, you know, the person with the privilege to be blamed, but both people being responsible. So that that's the added element for me, that I believe that it's, you know, there is no such thing as like a hundred percent. I think that there is a part a student can play, but when you don't have that power and the person in the room with the privilege, with the power, with the influence is carrying that, there is a, there's a power differential in the room. So definitely the faculty has more responsibility. Um, does the student not have responsibility? Absolutely they do. They need to respond, to respond and have um, uh, to take a step to have the courage to voice whatever they can within the boundaries of feeling safe. So I think there is a small part to play, but it's so subjective to each student's narrative, each student's situation. I think that there's a huge opportunity to learn about this very um, big weight 
that is in the room, this white elephant, as Leslie was talking about, that nobody names. So the responsibility may lie with both, but the larger amount must always be with the person with the power, with the influence, with the privilege. What do you think are some kind of concrete steps that faculty members could take to better support racial minority students and to kind of start this dialogue? Because uh, educators will be listening to this podcast too, and you all have both a student perspective and you have, you will be future MFT educators as well. So you can kind of see it from, from both sides. What are some steps faculty members could take? I think what you just mentioned about really normalizing some of these issues for me is, is really key. I am very fortunate to have uh, mentors that are, uh, that have a a wealth of of experience and and years of experience in the field um, of MFT. And so periodically, I'll reach out to some of those people or they might reach out to me. And I remember very early on having a conversation with one of those mentors and uh, they asked me specifically about my experience in my program here at UGA with the awareness that this is a historically white institution. And so I'm, I'm literally um, on a campus of about just under 40,000 students and about 7% of that 40,000 are identified as, as African-American. And so they were just very explicit in asking me about what my experience had been like um, so far. And I was a little bit taken aback, but at the same time, very appreciative because um, this was not... Um, a mentor of color. Um, This was actually an older white man asking me about my experience as an African-American woman in a majority uh, white space as a minority. And so I, I appreciated that. And I think it's simple things, seemingly simple things like normalizing it, um, having very explicit direct conversations with minority students about their experiences very early on. Because I think oftentimes during, you know, interviews, um, it, it it feels welcoming, it feels warm, and I'm very fortunate to be in a program where that's that's true. Um, but it's also I have to exist outside of of my program as well in this larger institution. And I I think engaging in conversations with students, initiating conversations with students, um, is is a good first step to take. And I think once you do that students will feel more comfortable in really sharing what their experiences are like. Oh, so well said. I'm a faculty member in the only MFT program, accredited MFT program housed within a school of social work. So in, inherent are social work values and working with underserved and minority populations. And I just, uh, you know, listening to what you said, sometimes faculty members forget to ask, especially if they're in the majority, they forget what it is like being in the minority experience, or they feel asking uh, potentially makes the student uncomfortable. But in this case, you were asked by a white male mentor, and it, it, it was welcome for you. So you, you believe that, that, that faculty members should directly inquire, even if they are in the majority. I, I do. And I agree with Shiza that so much of this is, you know, subjective. Um, and it may very well differ, you know, depending depending on, on the person. But I, I think it's it's all in your in your approach. I think really being deliberate, just like we do with clients, to build rapport and to really establish a, a good relationship with students. Um, that that's key. But I think as minority student, especially if you're new to a program, you're still testing the waters. You don't really know what might be considered acceptable versus what might not be. And again, I'm in this one down. And so I'm trying to to learn and, and to adapt and to adjust. But I think by initiating that conversation, like you're letting me know that we're in a space where it's okay for us to, to have these types of, uh, of dialogue. And so for me, absolutely. I say, let's, let's go there <laughs> and let's, let's talk. About- no, I like to hear that. I also like to think of it as like, it's not just like checking the box. Okay. I asked it's a, it's not a one-time conversation. It's an ongoing dialogue during your development in a, in a training program. Uh, talk a little bit about that, uh, Leslie, as far as, uh, how you keep that dialogue going and evolving that conversation. I think there has to be 
um, intentionality on on both sides. Quite honestly, I think as as a student, um, we do bear some responsibility, absolutely, um, to be open to that, and then recognizing that it is a part of developing professionally. Uh, it is a part of developing as a clinician, because the way that I think about it. If there is a hesitancy to to engage in these types of conversation um, with other professionals, then it, it begs the question of like how these things are being addressed in the therapy room with clients. Like we we know the issues of diversity, you know, be it gender, be it race, um, be it sexual orientation, um, all these things are are always at play. Um, in the room. And so I think both the student um, and the faculty have to be deliberate about doing these things and, and recognizing that it, it is a part of, of growth and development um, as a practitioner. What do you think, Shiza? I would think that the process has to be very structured, um, just building on what Leslie has shared. Um, I would agree with all of that. I feel that when the process is structured, it brings accountability to faculty members and they have to be more mindful of making sure that it is a part of their instructional, their um, academic um, interaction with students and so um, to to Leslie's point making sure that not only do they structure the the course or the interaction or the supervision with a framework and saying you know there is a power differential and I want you to notice that but then doing a midterm check-in to say you know has there been it and I want to see how this experience was for you uh, to make sure that I am learning from this and I knew how to support you and what I could do different to make sure that you felt safe and you felt like you had the best learning environment possible what could I have done differently to support you better? Uh, when you are noticing that students of the majority group are speaking more than students of a minority group in a classroom setting or if there is less participation from uh, you know certain students to really reach out to them individually to find out and not assume that they're they're more introverted and that's why they're not talking to check in uh, is to own one's privilege because you know let alone um, a regular student who who may not have that issue you compound that with a minority student who might have a lot more things going on for them in terms of feeling that power differential uh, it does impact participation the academic experience uh, uh, you know, in an MFP program learning. And I feel that as faculty, we are modeling for students in so many ways how they have to carry themselves in the field, in the profession, with their clients. And so if we cannot offer those safe spaces in the classroom, then there is something we need to do inwardly to really redesign how we instruct, how we um, model uh, communication and interaction with our students. So we, we agree it should be intentional and we agree it should be an ongoing dialogue, not a one-time thing. What do you all think about the format? Because sometimes in the context of either a class or a supervision group that the minority student could feel further stigmatized if it is a group dialogue versus a one-on-one -on -one conversation. However, the importance of educating that whole cohort or that system uh, about these dynamics, about race and diversity seems very important. What are your all's thoughts on the context, the individual dialogue versus a group discussion? I think a lot of it really, it depends, right? The answer that we that we love to, to give, but I, I think it's, it's true. It depends on, on the context. I think it can also depend on the student and the dynamics that already exist within that group. It's a tricky balance. I've had experiences where I felt like something occurred within a group setting and it needed to, like the rupture happened in a group and I feel like the repair needed to happen um, with, within the group as well. Going back to what Shiza just said about modeling, I think that the faculty member or supervisor um, 
can model to to the trainees in that setting that this is how we address these types of issues or this is one way you know that we can address these types of issues when they come up but if it's ever a question of that student's uh, emotional safety if it's ever a question of whether or not you know that student may feel further marginalized I would say err on the side of, of caution. But, you know, depending on all of those factors, I think it could be successful um, in either in either setting. There are times where it might need to happen one-on-one, but there are also times where something uh, might need to happen in a group where each person can walk away, you know, gaining something from that experience. What do you think, Shiza? For me, um, I know what I have done for my classes. I've been teaching for a couple of years. In my first class and introduction, I make noticing diversity a part of the, the structure. And that doesn't go for just the minority student. It goes for all students. So when I set it up as part of my framework, I am telling students to introduce themselves and to share a little bit about themselves and also to share what is different about and and then sometimes depending on the nature of the class i also ask them the question of if you can share uh, when you felt like you were treated differently and a lot of times uh, you know i will have a, a minority student share about an adverse experience and and a white student talk about how uh, you know they could be coming from a family of divorce or they could be socioeconomically disadvantaged or they could be a personal challenge that they experienced or have a sibling with a div- uh, disability and so many different things come up but it is generically a lot of rich conversation that comes out and immediately the first thing everybody notices is that everyone is different and not everyone is privileged there's something that many of us may be struggling with so i i really am a big advocate of starting outright with that because it creates a very humbling environment and i believe that that is a safer environment for minority students because there's nobody on a pedestal, some somebody from an um, adverse experience or somebody from a marginalized community. It's kind of a playing field where we're all meeting with some challenge that we struggled with. That kind of creates a, a possibility where future conversations can take place. Now, as far as singling out a minority student to say, well, um, how adverse was your experience since you are? Absolutely not. And I think most of us know the answer to that. But checking in can happen in so many different ways. Giving opportunities for those discussions to see when a student will take a bite at that or have the courage to participate is, I think, the job of professionals who are in that position of power. And I like what you're saying about instead of waiting until tension arises or there is a problem to normalize it at the beginning of your course or your supervision group, uh, both of you all have great ideas. Uh, We'll have a lot of supervisors and educators listen to this podcast. What are some other concrete tips or, uh, or things that educators can do concretely to kind of invite or normalize this dialogue. I agree with Shiza. I, I really like that idea of setting the stage at, at the very beginning um, so that when things do come up, like people are already somewhat aware of, of how these things will, will be addressed. And so it's not where you just wait until some type of, you know, rupture occurs. So I think more concrete ways is is really moving away from this sort of like checkbox mentality um, that that some people um, sort of adhere closely to. It's like the the diversity you know checklist, and I think if we're not careful, we can sort of fall into that way of being. Um, but I think it, it has to be something that you you take very seriously. Um, that it's more 
is more than just part of what makes you know the program accredited is because we we address diversity um and we teach cultural competency to our students i think it really has to be more so about who you who you are as, as a person and and how you identify um really a part of of your values and your in your belief system um where we really embrace differences um, in religion, we embrace differences in, in race and ethnicities. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's in that way, I think it's more, it's more organic. Um, it's a more natural way of, of being and how you really, uh, present yourself to the world. But I, I can't emphasize enough how important I, I think it is to really cultivate that relationship um, with students from the very beginning and then just continuing to be intentional. Uh, having those check-ins, but not in a way that that feels, um, that doesn't feel genuine because um, you don't want students to, to feel like, well, you're just you're attending to me because you feel like you you have to, but it comes from a place of authenticity because I think students are are able to to tell um, <laughs> when it's not. Yeah, students can tell, clients can tell. Like you said, it it is it's not a just check the box kind of phenomenon. It's an ongoing dialogue, and you mentioned that term one down. It is the supervisor, the educator going one down as well of not uh, pretending to understand the experience of the minority student and like like that mentor engaged you, asking you and being curious about your experience. So we, we've all in, in training settings seen minority therapist or majority therapist in training in the room with minority clients, but they don't know how to discuss these issues we're talking about today. What do you think are the blocks in a clinical setting now? What do you think are the blocks that stop these conversations about race from happening in a therapy room with uh, majority therapist and their minority clients. I, I do think um, for a lot of people, touching race, having those conversations is still very much taboo. Unfortunately, people are afraid to say the wrong thing, to do the wrong thing. And so it's almost like, I don't want to offend any anyone and so to avoid to avoid that i just won't even i won't even go there um and it's often to to the detriment of our clients unfortunately asking questions acknowledging your own gaps in knowledge and understanding i think is is critical because there there will always be things that we don't know for for a number of different reasons and so asking questions being transparent in in your curiosities, but I think we also have to be careful that we that we don't do it in a way where it's the client's responsibility, you know, or the client feel as though it's their responsibility to educate the the therapist. Um, so there is like this very you know subtle distinction between doing your own work as a therapist, but also um, having this this stance of of curiosity. Uh, with clients. Like we should have some knowledge base um, about various cultures and, and various uh, ethnic groups, but we know that within group differences are always there. And so we equip ourselves, we, we gain that knowledge, but still when we're working with a client, we have to be very direct in acknowledging the differences that exist between the two of us. Um, and it's no different from me as a black woman uh, working with a client who's also black, but made from a different social class and and really acknowledging that there is, you know, a, a difference in, in our in our levels of, of experiences, um, but not in a way, again, that the client feels marginalized. I think it, it does so much when we can acknowledge those differences and then reflect on how it's impacting the therapeutic relationship. Uh, I think you're so right on. Uh, many young therapists think it will hurt the alliance if they ask, but it actually helps and, and normalizes. And we have a lot of good research and just clinical wisdom that, that speaks to exactly what you're talking about. What do you think about uh, that, Shiza? I definitely agree with Leslie and would like to just build on that. I think um, some of it is around feeling safe to have those conversations and safety inevitably becomes a side effect or a consequence of being knowledgeable in that. So when uh, the majority group is not well equipped with information, it becomes an unsafe topic because you don't know where it's going to go and it may come in the way of having those transparent conversations. 
Um, and I would also like to add that onus also belongs a little bit to some of us where, you know, a huge component of growth in this area and making sure that uh, minorities have a fair and equitable experience in academic programs and careers and professions is also to not um, have a very aggressive approach when we talk about minorities, to have a more collaborative language to to identify and make sure that we are honoring and acknowledging, uh, you know, majority group leaders, professionals who are indeed inclusive and really exemplify and model what inclusion means and what using your privilege to really benefit a marginalized community means. And I think that, uh, you know, there's an opportunity for us to do a better job in that area so the collaborations and the partnerships can be stronger. That would encourage them, um, the majority group, to do more. How do you think as a profession, MFT, how, how do we get more qualified minority candidates to explore the profession and decide to become a marriage and family therapist? I do think we, we should take a more uh, proactive role in building partnerships with minority serving institutions. Um, and, and really for some uh, students of color, I think introducing um, the field of, of marriage and family therapy, I think we would all agree as, as a profession that compared to some other um, disciplines like social work or licensed professional counselors, people still don't know about the field of, of MFT, unfortunately, or they have a very um, surface level, you know, knowledge around the work that we do as systems thinkers. And that's even more true for, for people of color. And so I think, um, I know with um, the Minority Fellowship Program, um, part of what the staff does there is like they actually make trips out to different programs basically advertising for the fellowship i just wonder if as an organization we could in some way do the same um when there are recruitment fairs when there are uh graduate school fairs like being more um more intentional about going out to those places and letting students know about the work that we do. I think there's a potential there to to attract more students. Um, something that, you know, is part of my very long-term goal is, is to actually develop um, an MFT program at a historically black college or, or university uh, because one does not yet exist. And I, I do know of other um, MFTs of, of color who have, you know, similar goals and, and interests. And I think, again, that is a huge, you know, a huge way to, to bring more diversity into our field. And I think moving forward, as we become a more diverse nation, um, it's going to be key um, to, to our relevance um, in, in society. Um, as we continue to to progress um, as as a nation um, and become more diverse, I think as a field we have to do the same in diversifying professionals. Uh, so well said. Uh, what do you? I think there's a lot um, that can be done with encouraging um, students to be interested in MFB programs. I think we, um, you know, to Leslie's point, we have a great opportunity to exposing more people with the profession. We also um, have a great opportunity to to see what is keeping people away from the profession. Like I, I've always wondered, you know, this is such a great need. It's a, it's a great profession to be in. It compensates well. Why aren't more people doing it? So I, I would be very interested in, in finding out more. And I think that we need to know what is it that's coming in our way to be more successful to be more prevalent as a choice and uh, and work on those areas. I think that for minority students, especially um, because of the systemic perspective, this uh, program would, would and should be a preferred choice because the cultural components and the multiculturalism that systemic family therapy programs provide uh, is not provided in so many other um, different, uh, you know, um, sister or partner fields, and um, so so I would be very curious to find out and and see where what, where we get from there. I also think one of the power of family therapy was 
and has always been was act the actual work, seeing it being done. And I feel like as an educator, you know, good um, training tapes of minority students working with minority populations is essential in this recruitment and this development of an MFT brand. And I think you all are both right in the sense that, you know, recruiting very early on, going to HPCs, historically black colleges, what a what a, a great opportunity that would be. And you did mention, Leslie, the Minority Fellows Program, and have someone on this very podcast talking about that and what that's about. Just say a little bit about your experience and how the MFP program has helped your career and why it's a, a good opportunity for our minority students out there to take advantage of. Absolutely. I can't, um, I can't overstate the, the impact that the Minority Fellowship Program has made on my development as an MFT, I feel extremely blessed and, and fortunate to have been selected um, as a fellow for the past three consecutive years. Um, and in terms of the networking opportunities, I mean, it, there is no there is no comparison. Um, <laughs> being able to have exposure to MFTs, true experts and scholars in the field to have one-on-one -on -one consultations with uh, former, you know, editors of, of journals and getting their feedback about, about manuscripts and just professional development in general. Those are experiences that I don't think I would have had, um, had an opportunity to take advantage of had it not been for the fellowship program. And then of course, being able to really cultivate relationships with other young MFTs literally from across the nation has been so incredibly influential um, in my professional as well as my personal growth. In terms of the panel that we were able to put together for um, the annual conference this year, we had representation from across the United States. And I just, I mean, I thought that was like the most amazing way to really talk about, you know, our experiences coming from different uh, social locations. I think that made our conversation all the more rich. And then thirdly, I would say having opportunities to work with the research consultant that is a part of the MFP, who's Dr. Jared Dershey, so huge shout out to him who's at Kansas State. Um, he is truly amazing. I know for the vast majority of, of fellows, we entered our doc programs coming from master's programs that were pretty heavily clinically focused. And so now entering the world of, of research and, and publishing and learning about that process, learning about you know how to deliver a good solid presentation at a professional conference, Dr. Dershey has been, he's been amazing. So, I mean, the, the quarterly webinars that we're able to, to have, and even beyond that, but actually being able to contact him um, and talk over the phone about different projects that we're working on, and then given, being given the opportunity to have like, you know, really step-by-step -step instruction on quantitative uh, research uh, methodologies. So again, I feel incredibly blessed to have been given the, the opportunity to participate as a fellow. And I think for minority students in particular, who, who often you know, lack uh, multiple sources of support, that the MFP is able to, to meet a wide range of, of needs. Um, and so it's been, it's been key in my development for sure. I think that is outstanding and the you know, I think the other great way to learn about the Minority Fellowship Program is talking to someone like you, Leslie, that has gone through it and benefited from it. And I know uh, graduates of the program are uh, very eager to talk to other people and get them on board. So um, we'll certainly give out your contact information at the end. And I know you would love to share with others just like you just did what you got out of it. I have one more question for both of you all. And I see you all, I mean, you all met at an AMFT conference and then collaborated and had a very well, um, 
received panel at the 2018 conference in Louisville, Kentucky, and I imagine you will be back uh, presenting at future AMFT conferences, and I view you all as emerging leaders in this field. You know, as we're shifting from geographic-based within AMFT to topical interest networks, it does seem very relevant and what do you think about the possibility of a minority therapist topical interest network and what should the aims and goals of a group like that be? I think it was the 2017 annual conference uh, that was in Atlanta last year. There was sort of uh, this re-emergence of what was called the Alana Group. Um, it was an acronym that stood for, if I'm not mistaken, African American um, Latin American and maybe uh, Asian American, but it was specifically for clinicians of of color within the field of MFT. Um, And so there was a a small gathering at the 2017 annual conference. And then there was also a gathering at this year's conference in Louisville, Kentucky. And I think it's definitely evolving. Um, The the naming of, of the group is is changing. I think uh, now it's uh, CFTs of of color, and you know I was able to attend that gathering at the 2017 conference and really hearing about what people's needs and desires are for this type of uh, subgroup or or subcommittee of the larger uh, professional organization. I do think there is the the need for um, a students of of color. Um, subgroup as well, which could be, you know, a sub subgroup of the CFTs of, of color. But I think because of the the issue of power, you know, that we've talked about during this this interview, that students have very unique needs. And I think from forming some type of special interest group, if you will, that will allow for more um, advocacy for students. Um, that will allow the opportunity for students to really be um, intentional about speaking to what their needs might be within their particular programs and within the larger organization. So I think there's the advocacy piece, um, there's opportunity for something more more structured where these types of, of issues don't sort of, you know, go unnoticed or not really talked about. I think the sheer number of people people that were present at our workshop um, at this past conference really shows the interest that there are experiences that students are are having, and there are there are steps that we can take as a profession to address those needs. And so, I really feel like developing some type of group will provide a platform and give more structure and organization that will in turn really meet the needs of, of students. Yeah, I love how you said, I mean, we, we think of this as a minority therapist experience, but the student experience is, a, as we've been talking about this hour, a, a subgroup of that. So they need to be enfranchised. They need to have that voice. And there's issues that affect students um, that are different than affect clinicians that have been out in the field practicing for some time. So I couldn't agree more with you said. She's, I will give you the last word. Where do we need to go as a professional organization, the AAMFT, as far as, you know, building this dialogue around uh, race and minority issues? So I think I, I definitely agree with and I really liked what Leslie said about uh, you know differentiating between student needs and um, you know professional needs because there is you know when you become a professional you have a little bit more influence and power but you know in, in that food chain you still have a lot of struggles to overcome. I think as a profession uh, the AMFT definitely has a lot of um, opportunity for growth and to evolve in general. Uh, We uh, are very proud of this profession and I think that there's a lot of good intentions and uh, I think it's time that we we really start becoming more intentional with action items and uh, to-dos in terms of really mobilizing our efforts as it comes to race and minority issues because this is for the United States of America a very live issue and it's becoming more and more pressing 
um, I think society in so many ways can look up to WMFT to to role model how to change and how to repurpose our goals and mission and vision to really meet the needs of where we are in general as a society and in general as a field. I think diversity, race relations, minority relations definitely needs um, a, a bigger um, space and more seats at the table. I think it can no longer be a token uh, and it can no longer be the check mark on the list that you were talking about earlier on in the session. It needs to be a normal part of and a regular and a mandatory part of our learning. Uh, I am looking forward to seeing that our continuing education does not just require ethics as a requirement to maintain our licensure, but require diversity training and minority and race relation training as part of our, our learning and development because we need to notice and understand uh, other communities uh, at a much deeper level and we need to be the role models for that. So I think that we have our work cut out as a professional community and um, I'm looking forward to seeing great things to come. For, uh, from WMFT. I want to thank you all both for a uh, very thoughtful, intentional, and articulate discussion. And I believe you all will go on to be important emerging professional leaders in giving voice uh, to the minority experience. Okay, I'm pleased to be joined on the AAMFT podcast today by the director of the Minority Fellowship Program at the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy Research and Education Foundation, Jermaine Lowry. Jermaine, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to speak with you about the Minority Fellowship Program and what an exciting and awesome opportunity the program fellowship is. Yes, and, and a lot of people that have maybe heard about it, but don't really understand what it is or what opportunities are available. Uh, that's what we want to uh, just briefly here today kind of clear up. So, and we'll, we'll refer to a minority fellowship program as MFP uh, uh, for short from time to time. So if you're a listener, don't get confused. So I guess the first thing, if I know nothing about it, what are the goals and objectives of the MFP, Jermaine? Yes. The goals of the minority fellowship program First off, we have two, the first one being to expand the delivery of culturally competent mental health and substance abuse services to underserved minority and ethnic populations. And the second goal would be to increase the number of culturally competent marriage and family therapists. So we like to say that our objectives are the vehicles of which we uh, choose to reach our goals. And so we have two objectives that help us to uh, reach our interim goals, which are to provide financial support and professional guidance to grad students who are pursuing degrees in marriage and family therapist. In short, that would be those students who are going to uh, sit for a licensure exam to become an LMFT. And the second objective would be to provide a fellowship program that's open to all MFT students who are committed and have a demonstrated experience to research about the service to ethnic minority and underserved populations. That's great. So uh, if I'm listening to this, uh, what, as far as eligibility, after listening to you describe that, so I could be either a MFT master's student or a doctoral student, right? That is correct. So you would have to be a graduate student. And uh, as far as eligibility, you would need to be a U.S. citizen or you would need to have a permanent residence in the U.S. Do I need to be in an accredited program? That is actually a great question. So the uh, MFP fellowship uh, now for four years has been open to Coamped uh, schools and non-coamped schools, as well as uh, Hawaiian schools and also um, schools that would fall under HBCU that have counseling programs and that will be in marriage and family therapy as well. And that's great. So you said it, it's a four-year window. At what point uh, in my program, let's say I have just started my MFT program, I'm a semester in in a two-year master's program, do I need 
need to know about this ahead of time or at what part in my program, either master's or doctoral, can I apply to the MFP? Yeah, so we would love to uh, be able to gather uh, master's level students before they become a master's student. And so we have opened the application to those that are in their undergraduates in their senior year who would apply in uh, December through January and then uh, uh, hopefully get into the fellowship program and then be in the fellowship program in their master's years for two years. And two years uh, two-year terms are the uh, cutoff for those that are in the master's program. However, if you are a first-year master's student, it would behoove you to uh, connect with your university at, because we work with the universities to provide the minority fellowship program materials so that way students can apply uh, in their first year in December or January to be able to be in the fellowship year by their second year. The fellowship year runs from September the 30th all the way through September the 29th. And so because of this cycle, we would prefer that students to uh, apply so that they can be selected as candidates for fellowships as soon as possible. And then once you are, if you're transitioning from your master's to your doctoral degree, you are more than welcome to apply while you're in your second or third year of your master's fellowship to apply for the doctoral fellowship. And what does the application look like? If I'm curious about this, um, as far as preparing and being the most kind of qualified and prepared applicant, what does the application materials entail? So the application process is very vigorous. We uh, do a lot to post uh, parts of the application on our website so that students can prepare for the two-month window for the application. So first, an applicant would need to be familiarized with Fluid Review, and that is an application site that uh, AMFT uses to house and store uh, application information. They would go on there, they can sign up for updates uh, that would list any changes in the application. But once they are registered, uh, which takes about three minutes to do so, uh, they will then go on to look at the application and they would need to get three letters of recommendations, which we typically say can come from an advisor or program director. And then the third person would be a person who has witnessed or have seen you demonstrate commitment to serving underserved minority populations in the field of uh, marriage and family therapy. However, if you're coming into the field from another field, as long as you have volunteer experience and uh, serving uh, underserved minority populations, then you would qualify. After that, you would then write two essays, which would speak to the demonstration of your commitment from your past experiences to uh, serving underserved minority populations. And then if you're applying for the doctoral fellowship, we would ask uh, about your research and what your future research goals are uh, while you're going to be in the, the minority fellowship program. So it's a pretty straightforward application. Uh, if uh, students go on to uh, amftfoundation.org slash what we do slash minority fellowship program, they can see the two essays that are posted for each upcoming year so that they can get a head start on the essays. So that's the place to go if you're interested in more information. Could you repeat that one more time for our listeners? Absolutely. Uh, www.amftfoundation.org slash what we do slash MFP. I mean, what are the overall benefits of being associated with the MFP? Well, I, as the director of the MFP, I get the lovely task of seeing the students become fellows and then seeing the fellows grow through the many benefits that uh, the Minority Fellowship Program offers underneath the uh, foundation at AMFT. And some of the benefits are the fellows would receive a mentor, which is uh, who is someone who's going to help uh, them develop professional skills and uh, research skills as well throughout an entire year. Uh, typically, we see fellows who will uh, collaborate within research or uh, you or utilizing their mentor to 
be able to have a job if they're a master's fellow in either a clinical setting or a government um, uh, therapy and counseling uh, setting. Also, uh, we do offer um, financial stipends for our fellows that would help them to alleviate the cost of going back to school. But more than that, we offer cutting edge training through a lot of AMFT's platforms, utilizing uh, 10AL courses, as well as paying for all expenses to additional um, on-site training through the many training institutes that we have. We also uh, have our fellows to participate in the National Conference, which is a great segue into meeting a lot of professionals in the marriage and family therapy field. Our doctoral level fellows really benefit from having a one-on-one -on -one research consultation uh, that happens twice a year. They, we then also work with the, our doctoral fellows to develop research that uh, would follow SAMHSA initiatives and then getting them into the habit of uh, producing research materials, presenting. Uh, a lot, we see a lot of our doctoral fellows who will utilize their stipends to present at international conferences. So you have the, the uh, option to have international exposure for your research, which is huge for um, a doctoral student. Also, we have the uh, ability to uh, put our master's fellows through additional uh, training that would help them in their clinical goals. And so um, the benefits are wonderful to being a, a fellow. And also we like to say that once you're a fellow, you remain a fellow. So we typically have, we typically stay in contact with a lot of our fellows who have transitioned to MFP alumni, which has a network currently of 474 uh, alumni which which pour back into the program and then connects each fellow with um, premier guidance throughout their uh, longevity of their career in marriage and family therapy uh, that's awesome and i've, I've never met uh, any fellow that's gone through the program that hasn't benefited from the experience and also hasn't been or they're, they're always willing to talk about their experience and, and share you know how they were mentored and what opportunities they were given because of the MFP um, and I, I guess the last question is once you are completed uh, you mentioned this um, kind of desire and spirit of working with underserved populations but is there any other obligation um, to uh, AAMFT after the fellowship has been completed? Yes, so after uh, the fellowship has completed, uh, each student currently, uh, that's a SAMHSA requirement under the Department of Health and Human Services, that uh, students would continue to serve um, in the services to underserved minority populations for a minimum of two years uh, after the fellowship year has completed, which can be extended if the fellow uh, has not graduated. So really upon graduation, the two year clock would start. Uh, and that's something that's fairly new. However, uh, those that fellows that do come through our program often uh, provide a percentage of 75% of their time, either in clinical hours or research, which goes towards uh, expanding uh, culturally competent mental health and substance abuse services to underserved minority populations. So we love that our fellows continue the mission of the uh, AMFT Foundation that's wrapped up in MFP goals. Thank you so much, Jermaine, for your time. So comes to conclusion the first episode of our second season of 2020 of the AAMFT podcast. Thank you so much. Leslie, Shija, and Jermaine there. I learned so much. Lots of good things for our listeners to think about, whether you're still in your MFT program or you're out practicing the field or you're supervising. And Jermaine mentioned a lot of great information about the Minority Fellowship Program. Let me just give you the latest. Again, you can go to aamftfoundation.org. That's aamftfoundation.org. And you can find, uh, uh, that's the Research and Education Foundation. You can find the application information for the Minority Fellowship Program, commonly abbreviated as MFP. 
applications are now currently open and they will be open until February 14th. 2020 at 11:59 p.m. So there is time, and AMFT does a nice job. If you're interested in this, in addition to seeing all those criteria that Jermaine mentioned, uh, AMFT is hosting a webinar, a couple of them, uh, to walk you through the application process. If you are one of these eligible candidates for the MFP program, and I will tell you when those are. One is on January 23rd. That's a Thursday. Uh, from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. And there is another one on Thursday, February 6th, eight days before the deadline, also 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. And uh, you can join those webinars and apply right through aamftfoundation.org. Thank you so much for listening. We had so much great feedback in 2019 and 2020 already has some amazing uh, installments of the podcast ready to go. We can't wait to share those with you. We'd love to hear your opinion. In fact, uh, student response and going to a natural conference, uh, the AMFT annual conference is how I first heard of Leslie and Shiza, and they were recommended highly and enlightening and informative guests. So we're driven by listener feedback. Easiest way to get a hold of the AMFT is send an email to communications at aamft.org. You can reach me, Dr. Eli, at info at Eli Karam, that's E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M dot com. Follow the conversation on Twitter. It's at the AAMFT, and I'm at Dr. Eli Live. Hashtag is Stay Systemic and also the AAMFT Podcast. Please like, rate, subscribe, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And we're really gaining traction and moving up in the world of mental health podcasts. Love bringing the show to you. As always, until next time, my friends, stay systemic.